let, let's keep more of what you make first, right? How, and then with that money that you become more efficient with, make more money by investing back in yourself so you could expand your means. And then really start to focus on what quality of life means to you and how you can live wealthy along the way. And that you begin to live your legacy by how you show up, not just by what you leave. So you retire this notion of retirement instead, create a life that you love and have your finances support that because you're economically and financially independent because you're not waiting for 30 years for compound interest to kick in. You're finding money now and cash flow today so that you can start within three to seven years. This is the Better Wealth Podcast with Caleb Williams. Welcome to the Better Wealth Podcast. And in today's episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Garrett Gunderson. And this guy, I, I have so much respect for. He's a thought leader in our space, has written multiple books. But I want to highlight two things before we jump into uh, this this conversation that I had to have got to have with him. Number one is follow him on YouTube. Go to YouTube, type in Garrett Gunderson, follow his channel. Uh, he has a ton of amazing content that he that he shares, and I've just learned so much from him through video as well as in person. The other thing is we've referenced a couple times in this conversation uh, when it, as it relates to what would the Rockefellers do, a book that he wrote with Michael Isom, and it's very well written on life insurance, on the philosophy of trust, and, and kind of using the Rockefeller family as a case study. But one of the cool things that he did was uh, he he like highlighted what the ultra-wealthy are doing, but this is the solution for everyone. So I highly recommend that you go get the book. We just talk a lot about, just I, I asked him to, to mention his thoughts on the stock market, 401ks, his, his thoughts on like sole purpose, and obviously uh, Garrett crushed the legacy question. So without further ado, here's Garrett Gunderson. Hey, Garrett, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be with you, man. I've been a fan of yours for a very long time. It's it, There's very few people in the financial service business that I fangirl over, and you're one of them. <laughs> uh, had the opportunity to be in Salt Lake with you and witness uh, your workshop. And so first of all, man, I just want to thank you so much for all the work that you've done in putting it writing books in articulating on YouTube, Instagram, like I'm just, I'm the kind of person I am today. And I, and I quote you a lot, but I think the way that I do a lot of, because of just you going before me and, and putting it out there. So thank you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's been a, you know, it's been a labor of love for the most part. I mean, books, 80% of the time, 20% of the time, they're just a thorn in the side, but usually 80% of that, that process is quite a bit of fun. And, uh, yeah. So for my audience, uh, which is a lot of entrepreneurs, actually a lot of people that buy into the philosophy of the and asset and this idea yeah. of overfunding life insurance. And one of the big phrases that we use a lot is you, you being your greatest asset. Have you ever yeah. heard that phrase before? <laughs> I wonder where I got that. Um, so I'm wondering if you can give a little bit of your back backstory and on about wealth factory, but then I really want to jump into the book that you wrote with Michael about what would the Rockefellers do? Cool. Um, well, I mean, my background is I started a business when I was 15 years old and it was just washing cars essentially. But then I won Young Entrepreneur of the Year with it and it came with some money, which I thought was a lot of money at the time. It was 5,000 bucks and wanted to invest it. And that process was confusing. I got a lot of different information and conflicting information, all of it pretty well-intentioned, but overall, some of it just, you know, didn't really work out. And 
fortunately, I kind of discovered that while I was 18 years old, what wasn't going to work. And then went down this path of like, what was guaranteed in the world of finance, which is a question most people don't ask. But in asking that question, started to develop my financial philosophy and started flying somewhere basically once a month to interview people that I thought were the most brilliant financial minds. And I just leveraged being young as far as people being willing to pay it forward and talk to someone that had a lot of questions and just a little tiny memo pad with my questions in it. And I, I just was really curious because I want to know how things really worked. And I wanted to benefit myself by applying it in my own life and those people that I knew and loved, which was my family, and then you know make a business out of it. Initially, I'm like, I just want to make more money being an investor than a business owner. But my businesses are my main investments at this point. So that is where I'm looking to grow and make more money and bigger impact. I, I love it. I, I, I remember you have some pretty core philosophies uh, within Wealth Factory and your, your workshop model. Can you, can you like give a quick overview if someone was to ask you on an elevator, a one minute elevator? So this is a big, big building. What, what kind of like, what, what yeah. do you believe to be true about this whole money thing? If you had one minute with someone to give your philosophy, what would that be? In one minute, it's let, let's keep more of what you make first. Right. And then with that money that you become more efficient with, make more money by investing back into yourself so you could expand your means. And then really start to focus on what quality of life means to you and how you can live wealthy along the way. And that you begin to live your legacy by how you show up, not just by what you leave. So you retire this notion of retirement instead, create a life that you love and have your finances support that because you're economically and financially independent because you're not waiting for 30 years for compound interest to kick in. You're finding money now in cash flow today so that you can be there within three to seven years. One thing that I can relate to you is you wrote in your book, Killing Sacred Cow, is how you grew up kind of being a miser. And I am still that way. I like this idea of spending money on myself is really tough for me. When was the switch for you uh, as like, when you were like, okay, I'm, I'm going to actually, we have one shot at this thing called life and I actually want to enjoy life. I, I just won some stupid award at MDRT because uh, I was probably early 20s at the time. I'm sitting in the hallway and I'm talking to this woman, Nancy Ogilvy, who happened to be a partner at the time with Kim Butler and that Robert Kiyosaki was their client. And so I was very much aware of that and impressed by them. And as I talked to her, she goes, I can't wait till you get into the next echelon and you learn how wealthy people really think. Hmm. And I'm like, wait, I just won this award, basically rookie of the year, whatever the hell the award was. And you're saying, I don't understand. I want to understand. And so I just started to talk and she started to coach. And I remember one of the things I was saying is like, hey, I just want to accumulate X amount of money. When I have that, then we'll consider having kids and then we can live in a better place and all this. And she just said, yeah, what's it like living in the financial prison you built for your wife? Oh, wow. And, uh, and, and I was like, wow. And then, you know, we just, that's what, that's where the conversation started. And it ended up with that, where I had this profound breakthrough that I was living in scarcity, trying to minimize everything. And, I, and everything that I was doing was like, what could I cut out? And anytime I paid for my assistant, I'm like, oh man, you know, I could have bought with that money or whatever, that kind of stuff. So I had this like really faulty mindset and she helped open that up. So I remember calling my wife start breakdown crying because I'm trying to get her to buy another, like some really crappy apartment in a crappy area rather than the home that we really want, apologizing. And within, you know, a matter of weeks, we find the home that we love. We move into the home. My income goes up substantially that year. I start hosting study groups at this home rather than a crappy apartment that I was looking to buy that I could, well, I could easily afford it 
But everything I was doing before that was all in reductions thinking as to the production level thinking. And that was a major breakthrough for me because now it was about how much value can I create? How many people can I reach? How deeply can I create value for them? And I started to consider quality of life along the way, like a home that I really loved and enjoyed spending time in and that I could host people at and that I could actually get some work done in. And, you know, so it's like, that was a major, major shift for me. Yeah, I love that. And actually, I was reading your book for the second time, living in Wisconsin. I mean, wanting to get out of Wisconsin because I'm not a huge fan of the winter. And I made this, I made this like dumb comment to someone like one of my coaches. And I was like, you know, I'm going to wait till I have X amount of money in a bank account so that I can move. And we're talking like, like not like not like to get to like this place. It's like just because that was a goal that I had. And and they they really challenged me. They're like, why? And I realized it, I was coming out of scarcity. Yeah. And I am now moving to another place that, you know, is going to cost a lot of money. It's all relative, but it's that same idea. I'm picturing what the life I want to live. I want to be able to host. I want to be more generous. And this will allow me to do that better. One of the things that I kind of picked up from your workshop and from other people just in our space is instead of ROR standing for rate of return, what if it was return on result? What's your thoughts on that that idea? Well, rate of return can be misleading from this standpoint is when people are only thinking about that, they might neglect keeping more of what they make. The highest rate of return might be saving right. tax. It might be saving interest. It might be eliminating hidden fees or commissions in investments. It might be eliminating duplicate coverages or costs with insurance. And so if we're always going, I'll take a higher risk to try to get a higher return, you might actually be removing yourself from results and instead putting yourself in a very speculative place that sounds good, that it seduces you, but it actually can confiscate your wealth and money. Because if you believe it takes money to make money or high risk equals high return or you know the uh, millionaire next door or whatever it is, you're going to follow those philosophies. And unfortunately, your results are going to be limited by the context of that philosophy. So a limited belief system will equal limited results. And if it's going to be related to speculation, well, then in speculation, people are going to lose a lot of money. They're going to transfer a lot of wealth, but that's going to sound good in the moment. And then it's going to be infuriating or frustrating what happens. And then you see people become really bitter. So I look at like one thing is that money is a great benchmark as a companion, but it's a terrible benchmark by itself. Yes. Because there's always someone that has more. There's always ways that you could have done better. There's always more to have. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like this impossible benchmark because there's not, you know, the only four quarters, I guess, is when you die and you don't want to find out like you've been playing the wrong game through half of the quarters. Right. There's just like, hey, I'm trying to score as much as possible. And the reality is you're playing golf. And while you're trying to run up the score, you're losing to everyone else that's being efficient along the way. So so I think of like quality of life being a key benchmark. And you have to define what results mean because there's a result of what you're getting from a financial standpoint, but there's also the results of what that means from a quality of life standpoint, from a sole purpose standpoint, from a like what you're doing on a daily basis standpoint. Because you know, I remember working in this place called Marketing Ally, where we took inbound calls in college for whatever nonsense it was, US robotics or a cookbook or whatever, right? And I, in my mind, I'm like, if I would work 16 hours a day, seven days a week, this still isn't going to get me where I want to go. Yeah. So working harder, spending more time in it, yeah, will I get more results? Yeah, but at the expense of what? We have to understand opportunity costs. We have to understand comparative advantage, which is what is it that we can do that no one else can do? And how do we spend more time in that so that our results are more exponential? And for me, that's speaking, that's writing, 
that's being on video, that's being on stage, and that's you know the vision that I'm creating for the company that I'm involved in. And when I'm outside of that, can I get results? Yes, but will they be extraordinary results? Probably not. Are they unique results? I doubt it. And will it drag me into a bad mindset because I'm now dealing with operations and management, which I'm not inspired by and that I'm not built to do? So I think that you know we look at a lot of this Silicon Valley nonsense that is ends up being you know uh, nothing. Like people invest in a lot of hype because it sounds great. But dude, I'm tired of this whole stock market notion where you've got companies that are just hemorrhaging cash, just dying, but they're trying to go public so that they can get some valuation. And you know whether that's Uber and Lyft or whether that's, I mean, we could just go through tons of these companies that are private companies that don't have a sustainable business model and they're hoping the stock market will take them there. And you know what? It either works or it doesn't work. And if, it's, if you're losing a boatload of cash in the name of one day, someday, that's highly speculative, and I don't care what the stock value is supposedly going to be, because the reality is it's only what it's worth, only what someone's going to pay for it. And how long will your faulty story last? Is the question. Right. There's too much hype, and there's too much nonsense that people are investing in. When I first when I first started in this business, I was really cautious not to rock any boats. And then this last year, I really came to the conclusion: Why would you ever, as an entrepreneur, especially, want to invest in a four hundred one k? Yeah. And one, do you remember the rant? I don't know if you do this at every workshop, but you went on like a 15 minute rant on the stock market. I'm wondering if you can recreate that in, in two minutes or less, but I, it's like, wow, I walked away. I'm like, holy crap. Like that makes a ton of sense. And it had a lot, it had, it started to do with the lack of value creation. Well, I, I've been writing articles and doing videos on this because there's not enough talk about it, but I, my latest article that I'm releasing on Forbes is, lose the stock market or lose your money. And it's not based upon the standard notion of, um, oh, it's the stock market's overvalued right now, which I believe it is. It's, it's more, is the stock market a viable solution in today's world? What was it invented for? It was invented as a way for, for companies to raise capital. And so you could either raise capital by issuing debt, which are bonds, right? And then you have a fixed percentage that you pay back on however much you got, or you could raise it by giving up equity, which is now you have small pieces of ownership that you give up in the company because some people want that upside potential of what the company could be. Well, let's face it. People aren't really raising capital through the stock market anymore. People are trying to get rich if they actually take their business through IPO and then they end up with this huge you know, amount of valuation or money. And, and the reality of that is fewer and fewer companies are doing this. You just see it happening less frequently than it used to be because it used to be, you know, everybody out there, Morgan Stanley, everybody, oh yeah, this is a buy, no matter what, right? And then they issue the IPO, the company goes up in value, and then it eventually kind of returns back into the stratosphere eventually, you know, and, and I just see that fewer companies are doing that. One is because the rules involved in that are, are problematic. The fiduciary rules of a publicly traded company are you have one thing and and I saw an article that just came out and it said, <clears throat> Big Pharma uh, CEO said, my business isn't to get people healthy. My business is to increase shareholder value. And the reality is I hate that notion, but that's actually what they are supposed to do based upon fiduciary rules, which say they have a responsibility to shareholders, which means they have less responsibility to employees unless it's to help shareholders and less responsibility to customers unless it's to help shareholders. And this is why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, because most of the poor are working as employees or middle class are working as employees 
right? And then they're just consuming off the money that they make. So they're customers of other places. But a lot of them don't have this high leverage money where they own a business and they issue a stock or they're not even investing in these stocks that have a potential to appreciate. And you know what? We just see these companies with a lot of misinformation, plenty of lies because it's very short-sighted of what in this next quarter is going to bump that shareholder value. And they will put twice the work on an employee just to try to bump shareholder value. They'll water down what they're offering to the customers just to increase you know, shareholder value. They have to obviously remain competitive and to whatever degree there is the private market still where the government hasn't interfered or where they aren't the only game in town and trying to squash other competition. Well, the reality is they just have to be good enough rather than great. And so I don't really believe in the stock market because of that. I think most of the companies in the S&P 500 are companies I no longer want to do business with. They're old, they're antiquated, they're bullies, they, they aren't really out there with the value creation in mind, they're just looking at their shareholder value rather than as a customer. And I like these smaller, more nimble companies that are disrupting everything, that are coming in and saying, hey, vote, your, vote with your dollars, but also let us know how we're doing, and if we can't improve, then do business somewhere else. I, they're not asking for 36-month contracts, they're not asking for your firstborn in order to do whatever with them, and, and they're not shaking everyone down. So, I mean, I, I just think that the stock market is become something different than it started with. And I don't like what it has become. I think that, it, you know, it wasn't really meant for a poor and middle class person just to automatically put money in without thinking about the ramifications, because ultimately, they're not sophisticated enough to know and most people aren't even the really wealthy, which companies are going to make it and which companies are not. We got technological considerations, we got artificial intelligence considerations. Yeah. And we also have false reporting considerations. And we also have the pressures of short term stockholder value considerations and the reality of a lot of these yep. companies are a bunch of a-holes that we wouldn't want to do business with considerations. So I don't have a 401k. I don't put money in the stock market. I put money into the companies that I'm involved in and I have a transition plan that happens on a daily basis of how I turn my business wealth into personal wealth. So all my eggs aren't just in the business basket. It's something I have in the personal basket, which for me is a lot of overfunded insurance policies, like what you would teach. It's also a captive insurance agency, which protects my companies, but builds up a cash reserve for me. And, you know, that's, I've simplified my life. I used to do real estate. I used to do, uh, I did two oil deals. I did two IPOs at a hard money lending fund. You know what it was? It was a chaotic nature that I was just chasing the greedy moments in those times of society rather than sticking to what I know, investing more heavily in that, increasing my intellectual, um, financial intellect and IQ, and then just saying no to a lot more things because we get far too many pitches that if you could just say no to, you're going to save time and money. Right. And there's too much loss where people spend. Absolutely. You know your piece of advice you gave me? What? When we talked, it, you, you said, stay focused. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> and that was the exact thing I needed to hear because I was in the process of like, Seeing if I could juggle five things because I also I I have the, I have the fear of missing out. Yeah, the whole notion of multiple streams of revenue. The problem is if you have too many streams and one stream dries up, you go to try to fix the stream that's dried up, and then the other ones get neglected and they start to dry up. Versus building the Amazon River. What is your number one thing that you could bring to this world? What's a vision that's so compelling you're going to wake up every day to work on it? How do you create so much life around that that if it overflows, there might be some streams that you create but you don't get distracted and derailed with the streams and neglect the river. People listening to this, I want you to hear the intentionality that Garrett has to living his life the way that he wants to live. 
And it goes back to like, you're doing all this stuff, but it, it it's meaningless if it's just a piece of paper or a number, but it's the way that you want to live your life. So compound interest is a function of your money growing over time. Now, one, you're very public about your, um, you're not a huge fan of everyone using it as an excuse because in, in my opinion, and I think your opinion as well, people just shut off their brain because this notion of it being this eighth wonder and it will happen someday in the future. Why do you, why do you, why are you so tough on compound interest? Because compound and- interest has made the banks rich. It's made institutions rich because they want to hold on to your money as long as possible. And when you have a 30 year horizon with a multitude of things changing between now and that 30 years, well, guess what? You're going to put yourself in harm's way. There's no responsibility, no stewardship, no accountability. And ultimately, it's just hope that something's going to work out in the long haul. And then when you get there and find out it didn't work out, the very thing that didn't work, they tell you to do more of. They say, we'll put more money away. Well, I I don't have time value of money left anymore. Take higher risk. Well, it was the risk that that I ended up losing with this. I believe in cash flow. Like institutions aren't in this 30-year horizon of retirement planning. No, they're building cash flow and they're looking at their numbers on a regular basis and they're making adjustments. There's no room for adjustment if you have that long of a horizon, but there's plenty of room for deception. There's plenty of room for disappointment because the U.S. Department of Labor says 95% of Americans are not economically independent at age 65. Now they save money and they put it away, but 401ks are so grossly and negligently funded that I read a, a Yahoo Finance article saying, what does it take to be a 401k millionaire? And what they found is you got to make $600,000 of income and max out your 401k. Well, that's stupid. That just means that you put a million dollars in there. And by the way, when you get a million dollars in there, a million dollars in a retirement plan in today's interest rate environment is going to produce you thirty-five to $40,000 of taxable income per year. How, how many people ever get to the million? Like 1%. How many, how many people can live off $40,000 a year after they've saved up for a million? It's going to be a huge disappointment. It is a broken, terrible system, but it's gone unquestioned and unchecked for far too long. And people have just decided, I guess we'll live with the disappointment. But you know what? Let's treat it more like the airline industry. It either works or it doesn't. If it doesn't work, you don't get on the freaking flight. So let's get, let's get a little bit safer and let's create a higher standard there, right? I, I love it, man. I 100% love that. Uh, let's now go into your book, What Would the Rockefellers Do?, and it, it, this has a lot to do with, you know, oh, let me, how about you give a quick summary and then I'll ask my next, next question as it relates to the life insurance. And 50% of this that. book is really why overfunded life insurance can be a great tool for anyone, regardless of where you're at in life, to start out. Something that Rockefellers have used is insurance as a tool to build up a way to replenish their trusts over time so that every time an heir dies, money comes back in tax-free to being able to have cash to use for other things, um, it's been instrumental for them. In the book, I also talk about other things you could do for legacy, whether you have money or not, which has to do with how you invest in your heirs and your family and the way that you think about it. And so I think that's useful as well. But even though the title has the most sophisticated thought, you know, like Rockefeller, that sounds really big. It's actually meant for the masses where killing sacred cows, if you're not entrepreneurial, it won't be as helpful. If you're not willing to be entrepreneurial, it won't be quite as helpful or five-day weekend, it's pretty comprehensive, right? Um, on five-day weekend, it goes into some real detail on how different things work with investing, where this is just like a one-trick pony that is very much my never-fail-me strategy. So, you know, if you, you'll, you'll be able to get it at the end of the book. You know exactly yeah. what to do and how to do it, and it'll plant some seeds of what you can do from a legacy standpoint as when well. When people come up to you and say, Garrett, why are you 
fan of life insurance because I've always heard, and Dave Ramsey has said that life insurance is the worst place to put your money. What's your, what's your two minute response to that? I mean, I wrote a chapter on the book in it. I think Dave Ramsey's right that most people, the way they fund their life insurance and which company they pick and the type of insurance that they use. Yeah. Like I'm not a huge fan of most variable universal life or universal life or indexed universal life. And when Dave looks out there, that's what you see pitched most of the time. You see it pitched in a place that it's not funded that well either. So I think that he's right. And he's only looking at expense. And for most of his crowd, they're spending more than they make. So if they try to go overfund an insurance policy while they have 18% interest rate credit cards, I think Dave has it right. Just pay off the credit card. I think that he's looking at the masses out there, which 90% of people don't design it the way you or I would want people to have it designed. And so that's why they're hearing the advice from him. Um, You know, it would be interesting to see, like, because I've seen there's this guy, the white coat investor who is who has a blog posted about me before and I was supposed to debate with who's very anti-life insurance. And the numbers he quotes that happen in the industry is just different than what I've seen because we've educated clients when I sold insurance from 98 to 2005 and any of our licensees that we give content to that, that does insurance. I mean, we just see such a high retention rate. They're educated. And you know, I just posted something recently on social media saying, what advice would you give yourself 10 years ago? And three of the posts were like, I just say go full on and max max funding your insurance plan. That's been the one thing that I can always count on at work. So I think that there's people leery because of commission structure. There's people leery because there's so many different types of policies and there's people that have oversold something or they're under, they don't have the right knowledge for it. But I mean, look, the wealthy, the wealthy have used it forever. I don't think that, you know, uh, Dave Ramsey's right. giving advice for people that are going to have an estate tax problem. Dave right. Ramsey, we can give him this. He stick, sticks in his lane and he and he stays yeah. consistent. And I, I appreciate that. And the majority of his advice is really, really good. Yeah. I just think that his advice on the stock market is a bit misinformed. And I and like to be fair, I haven't read his stuff for years, but I got a bunch of his books as a as a gag gift for Christmas one year. And I I decided to read them. You know, I decided just to see what was in them. And and I like a lot of the like fundamentals there in the basics, but I think there's a lot of stuff about the stock market that's going to disappoint people if they follow up. I want to explain to you how I like my one phrase to people is my aha moment to this whole strategy was when I figured out that I didn't have to choose between one day in the future, now in the present. The reason in my book that I build up compound interest, is not because I believe it's this amazing wonder. It's that's what everyone talks about. And I wanted to first point, point, poke holes at like, you're not even getting that. But if you are going to get it, why don't you get it for the rest of your life? Because Make of the it uninterrupted, cost. right? Yep. Yeah, uninterrupted. Uninterrupt because right. So like get that lifetime. But then our greatest financial need is actually using money. And you, I mean, you've had Nelson in your, in, in your office teaching your team. It's like your greatest financial need is the use of capital. And so my aha moment was when we could say no to that false choice of one day in the future, now in the present, and the most efficient way... And when structured and utilized properly, life insurance is the most efficient way to get your money to grow the rest of your life. More importantly, have control to live the life that you want to live. What are your thoughts on that? And do you have any critiques or added bonuses to that? Nelson and I, Nelson wrote Infinite Banking Concept. We didn't see eye to eye on everything, but I thought he was pretty revolutionary in getting people thinking. Like he wanted people to put 100% of their income in it, like every dollar. And my reason that I didn't really feel that way is... Um, one, when I was trying to buy a lot of policies on other people, it just was time consuming. And two, sometimes it's just kind of a pain to get your cash out versus just going to a bank. Um, and three, there is a provision inside of policies that say they can wait up to six months to give you your money. 
Now, my belief is anytime there's something in the contract, it's because it right. will eventually be used. Um, you know, so I, I just, I wouldn't put a hundred percent in there, but I would put a large percentage in there. And so even though I might not see it exactly how he sees it, I thought that he shed some light on something that a lot of people missed and has made a huge difference because I don't know, in the 20 years I've been doing this, I just don't get much resistance. Like, I don't get a lot of people going like, oh, but I heard life insurance is a terrible thing. I hear most of the time they're like, oh, this is actually, I, they're way more open-minded to it. It's way more commonplace. You're hearing about it far more often than you used to. And I would like, for me, maybe it's because of who I'm educating and how I come out. I hear more of the opposite. Like, why wouldn't you do insurance? Like I, that's becoming more of the norm. Garrett, one of the questions I want to end with is this idea of this being your last day. So, you know, this is your last day on this earth. You're with the, your family and the people that you love the most. What kind of conversations are you going to have? And what, what do you want to pass down as far as a value principle to your kids? The good news is I've done most of the work. So I've, I just filmed the 13-minute video for my kids. I've got my family constitution, which is 38 pages of words for my wife and I about distilled philosophies and, and our core principles and having workbooks to help them discover their sole purpose. So I think it would just be like talking about what were our top five favorite memories, top five favorite days. Like, you know, the good news is I spent a couple months in Europe with my family. I, I bought a cabin where we're doing all these fun things right now. So uh, I've just been living my legacy. So it, not a lot would change that last day other than I uh, wouldn't be on a, on a podcast. I wouldn't. Uh, you dance know. on me. <laughs> I'd be like, sorry, bro. You're out, man. And I'd be, you know, I'd be hanging out with my with my family for sure. Right. Well, Garrett, I appreciate you living your legacy and sharing sharing your knowledge and your passion with with me and and a lot of other people out there. And um, man, I I look up to you, and I'm I'm excited that you're in my life. Hey, man, I like how you're super inquisitive, always asking questions. Someone uh, sent me your your landing page, and I bought your book uh, from it. Um, and then you came to my event shortly after, which was really cool. So, yeah, keep on doing what you're doing. Thanks, man. All right, take care. Hey, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Garrett and make sure to go follow him on YouTube, go get his book and let me know what was the big takeaway that you had for him. And, and also, if you're interested in learning more about Wealth Factory or more about his services, you can go check him out at wealthfactory.com or you can feel free to ask me um, because I've been involved in his workshops and obviously um, have read all of his books and have learned from him directly as well. So uh, don't be shy. Make sure to reach out. I would love to hear your key takeaway from our conversation and go out and have an amazing rest of your week. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. Make sure you press subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or your favorite podcast player.